You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Last week we looked at the great contrast, right, between the old and the new, the better, superior covenant that Jesus initiated. So today we're going to look at the great reconciliation. I'm dropping you right in again in the middle of something here. (laughs) We'll get context though. We'll find our footing. So 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21 is our main text. And then we'll we'll look. We'll find out what's going on. And uh, I'll explain some things. Somebody just got a Fox News alert. I know that sound. (laughs) Is it Trump? Something happening? All right. (laughs) There's always something happening. (laughs) All right. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who brought Christ, or who through Christ, sorry, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a lot. It's one of my favorite little sections of Scripture, though. It's packed with so much stuff, okay? So, if we go up, I'm not going to go and read. We've got to get some context here, all right? See, I would have started with 17, but it starts with therefore, so you have to see why it's therefore, right? (laughs) You have to always move up, all right? So in verses 1 through 10, Paul is simply instructing believers to please God. Now, because we often, why? We want to please others. We want to please ourselves, right? So to please God is to trust in his word of grace for us it's his grace it's his right righteousness his forgiveness his gift of faith by the power of the holy spirit that assures us all right it assures us that nothing i mean that nothing in this world can separate us 
from him, okay? It's not going to happen. And then this whole judgment day thing that everybody likes to talk about, many speak of it being so somber and serious, I actually believe it's more of a day of celebration for those who have put their trust in Christ because there's no condemnation, right? For those who are in Christ. So everyone's always like, that judgment day's coming. Like when you pass from here, you're going to be celebrating. I, I, I'm confident in saying that. <laughs> All right. Now, I want to address something because in verse 11, Paul mentions this fear of the Lord. It says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Okay. Also on that whole persuading thing, we'll see that again. Uh, this, oh, this week, I'm just, I'll sidebar then. I've just been taking a lot of debates and research, research in on Calvinism so I could try to address it at some point, and it makes my head hurt. But <laughs> predestination versus persuasion, there's persuasion and persuading others to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is mentioned twice as many times as the word predestined. So why are the apostles spending so much time, time trying to persuade people to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ if they were just predestined to believe or not believe in the first place? I'm sure Calvinist has an answer to that. But, <laughs> but persuasion is mentioned twice as much than uh, predestination, okay? So I want to address the fear of the Lord because a lot of people seem to be confused on that. Does anybody know what fear of the Lord is? <laughs> you do? You guys are shaking your head? She's telling you that you know what it is. <laughs> all right. You don't have to answer. That's all right. All right. We need to understand it, and we need, we, when it comes to fear in biblical terms, okay? Now, some translations here in verse 11. Uh, I saw even it reads the terror of the Lord. Uh, but the fear of the Lord is something more than surprise and terror. OK, so book of Proverbs is good. It teaches that that it's far from cowering in dread before God. All right. A person who fears the Lord actually clings to him. All right. In Psalm 34, 4, it says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then it goes on to say that the angel of the Lord, Jesus, encamps those who fear him and delivers them. And then it declares, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. All right. This is all to say, in other words, that when we fear God, there is nothing to be afraid of. All right, this is a key concept through the Old Testament. The problem, though, is that the Hebrew, all right, the Hebrew noun uh, translated fear, sometimes it's a verb when it says to fear, it does not communicate itself through any single word in our English language. Okay? So fear is not what fear is in English. Okay? S to us, that has a negative connotation, right? Fearful. We just had Halloween, scary stuff, all that, right? Boo, trick or treat, haunted houses, fear. Boom, right? All right, it means to be afraid of something or someone. The Hebrew term can mean that sometimes, but the majority of its use is not in that manner. Okay, so by reading the same word in different contexts and always thinking it's one single thing, right? 
because of our understanding of it in English, does us no good at all. That's because the word fear, like so many Hebrew and Greek words, have many different shades of meaning. So, when referring to a person of high position, it takes on the idea of standing in awe or reverence before that individual, right? He wants us to fear him in this sense. This is not being afraid of God, okay? Fear of the Lord is not to be in fear and afraid of him. If he is our father, should we be afraid of our father, right? Uh, that's not a good thing. If you're a child and you fear your dad, not good, right? Especially when mom says, wait till your dad gets home, right? <laughs> Not good. You're not, you're not excited when dad comes home, right? This is not the type of fear that it's communicating here. That is not it. God wants us to be in awe of him, to have reverence of him. He is our creator. He's our savior. He is our father. God wants us to have the healthy reverence of him and who he is. And in doing so, we respect him. And his word. And this is why Proverbs points out that true wisdom begins with such fear when it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. All right? So this fear then is closely related to trust because we can truly respect and reverence God only when we believe He is truly everything that His word says He is. All right, so we should understand fear of the Lord as reverence and trust. This is what this means, okay? So in verse 11, Paul is saying, trusting the Lord, all right? Trusting the Lord, we persuade others. And then further context in here, because we're trying to get our footing here, as it goes about false teachers who are boasting of themselves. They're leading the, the Corinthian church away because they have despised God's ministry through Paul. And there's this whole thing with super apostles and all this type of stuff and the, through, throughout this, this stuff. But the, we have this, okay, but the, uh, in there. But then Paul says that the main source and motivation for his ministry was the love of of Christ. This is his drive. This is what controls him. And that when Christ died, all who ever lived or would live were connected to his death and enter it when they come to faith, right? I've talked about this before. The baptism and all this, right? You're in Christ. You're dead with him. You're, uh, you're crucified. You've died with him. And you're resurrected with him. Now, Paul would no longer be foolish and consider Christ as just a man, uh, a mere man in flesh. Because as, as God did with Paul, he does to all who accept Christ. He redeems, he restores the person into a new sphere of existence. Okay, A recreated, recreated as a person of faith in Jesus who desires to live in and for him alone. So in Christ, the things of the dead, sinful flesh, they have died. And the born-again believer is under the lordship of Jesus. And this brings us then to our text. All right? And you'll notice when I read that, there are five times. There's five times in those verses that some form of the word reconciliation is used. 
So that defines the theme of what we read in this section. It's about this ministry of reconciliation. That God has restored favor unto man, enabling him to come to God through Christ by faith alone. This is what this reconciliation is. He reconciled the world. He restored favor. No priest, no sacrifice, no temple, certain time of year, no feast, no festival, any of that. It's just, it's gone. It's done. The world is reconciled. Favor has been restored to come to God through Jesus. And it says it's our duty to tell people they can be part of this. Our mission is to bring this message of reconciliation to sinners, to preach to them the gospel, this good news that the relationship of hostility and hatred, all right, that whole wall, that relationship of alienation between God and sinful men can totally be changed so that the enemies can now be forever children of God. This is the gospel, all right? Part of it. We go through different parts and aspects of the gospel a lot here. This is, the, this is it. This is the good news. That it is possible for a man who is a sinner to be reconciled to God because God has reconciled himself to him. And Paul says that we have been given, all right, at the end of verse 18, we have been given this ministry of reconciliation. Now, here's, this is what, when it becomes a little, I was like fascinated by this. All right, the ministry, it's service, all right? The Greek is the service of re- reconciliation. Does anybody know what service means in Greek? <laughs> if you guys are all up on your Greek. <laughs> it, it, it made me, it sort of made me laugh. It means to wait at a table. We are waiters. We're waiters, we're waitresses, and we bring to the table of sinners, right? The unbelievers, the mill of reconciliation. We serve them the truth of favor being restored to them. All right? So I got a kick out of that. It's like, oh, you made us waiters. <laughs> In this term word here, it's, it's logos. It's a different variation of logos. It's very close. It can be a synonym for message, but it carries even something beyond that because logos in the ancient times, all right, indicated not just a word, not just a message, but it indicated what is true and trustworthy as opposed to what was a myth. All right. So throughout the New Testament, Paul refers to the logos of salvation. That's the message of salvation. He refers to the logos of the cross or the word of the cross, which uh, which to those who are perishing is foolishness. But to those who believe it is salvation. Right. In Philippians, you would read about the logos of life, the word of life, which is what we hold forth. Our message then is a message of salvation. It's a message of the cross. It's a message of life. And it's all wrapped up in this message of reconciliation. And then Paul describes the nature of this calling then in verse 20 when he says, therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. All right. You and I, the applicability here is still there. Right. It doesn't matter. He wrote this to the Corinthians. 
Here it says believers are ambassadors of Jesus. And it has, in the Greek, it has this idea of being very old, all right? Because again, in ancient times, the old and experienced people were usually the ones chosen to be ambassadors and uh, of emperors and of kings, okay? So it's a very noble word, all right? And an, an ambassador represents his government in all of its character and in all of its dignity, an ambassador's person and character and virtue lend weight to the authenticity and dignity of the kingdom in which they are from. So an ambassador is then this messenger. And an ambassador is a representative, right? His message, his authority are given to him by his king. And in Paul's day, such a duty was highly respected. So here we are in this in this world, all right, we are citizens here in the United States, but we are uh, ambassadors for the kingdom of God, and our citizenship is also in heaven, right? We belong to this other sphere of uh, atmosphere, this dimension, if you will, right, the spiritual, and we have been called into this role of ambassadors to tell people, to speak to them that they have reconciliation. They can enter into reconciliation to the king of our kingdom who desires to make them subjects of his eternal kingdom of glory. It's pretty heavy. This is why I love this section. So Paul says the believer comes with this authority that's been bestowed onto them from their king representing the kingdom. And he comes with a word this word of reconciliation from the court, if you will, of heaven to plead with people to be reconciled to God, right? The king of all, Jesus, king of kings, Lord of lords. And he's making these appeals. God is still making such appeals to sinners and he's using believers to do it. So what then is this ministry of reconciliation? What is it? What's it look like? Okay, Reconciliation begins with God. Verse 18 starts with all this is from God, right? Some translations, all these things. So in the context, what is all of this or all these things that are from God? All right. That's how you figure out context. You just move up a little bit. Always read up a little bit and then down a little bit, okay? Go to verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So when Jesus died, right? All who come to faith in him died in him and he died for all and we become new. In verse 17, sums, sums it up with, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is his death, his burial, his resurrection, then all of this then is from God. Right? Sinners are simply offenders. Any change that's going to come, comes from God. He sought a way to reconcile himself with them, to redeem them and restore them. He made the reconciliation, not us. 
Reconciliation is a divine provision by which God's, some would say, holy displeasure against man, I believe it's grief, was taken care of. Hostility removed, relations restored. God has provided it. He accomplished it. All we do is receive it. God, by his own will and his design, with his son, becomes the means to reconcile sinners to himself. Right? So if you're a believer today, you're in Christ, reconciliated, right? Now, here's the thing. Maybe jumping ahead of my... Yeah, I probably will. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> All this was achieved through Jesus, right? Why? We've gone over this before. Why through Jesus? Why through him, right? Why the suffering? Why the cross, right? Christ was the only sacrifice that worked. Christ is the only mediator who could stand between God and man, right? God's the only way, and apart from him, there is no other way, or Christ is the only way. He is the only one in whose name there is salvation. He's the only one who could reconcile God to man. That's it. Who, he's the only one who could break down the hostility, the animosity, all right? He alone. There is salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's Jesus. So God was in Christ reconciling the world. That's profound. How does that work? I don't know. <laughs> God was in Christ, okay? All right. So some atonement views say at some point God turns his face away from Jesus, right? All heaven turns away. They can't look upon him anymore. That doesn't make any sense, right? First off, God can look at sin. It's okay, right? Satan entered his presence. <laughs> Just read the book of Job. God in all of heaven did not look away while Jesus is on the cross. If God was in Christ, how does that work? I don't know. <laughs> Furthermore, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus incarnate, cannot be separated from the Trinity, because then the Trinity would cease to exist. Right? Just simple logic. Right? So, God is in him. Right? Further, Scripture says the Godhead was pleased to dwell in him physically. So, anybody saying God turned his back on his son, you know, and all this type of stuff, or that Jesus was just a man, we have God was in Christ... And the Godhead, the, the complete Godhead, was pleased to dwell in him bodily. So it's a profound statement. How it works, I don't know. I can't expl fully explain to you the Trinity. It's beyond my comprehension. can only speak on it on, on human terms. But here we can say we know this, that God was actually the reconciler. He's doing the reconciliation through the incarnate Son. It's a divine work. His plan, his power comes into place to accomplish this. And then with this, we see this act of justification that takes place. And it's by the act of justification then that verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How do you do it? How did he do that? Not counting their trespasses against them. Scripture can sometimes be easy to understand when you just keep reading that's the key. How was the reconciliation done? There's only one way. The only, 
there's only one way that sinners could ever be reconciled to God, right? That, that way would be if sin is no longer an issue. What, what is it that separates men from God? Sin. Sin. Thank you. <laughs> so for reconciliation to take place, sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be not counted against them. How is that done? He looks, he says, I'm not going to count their trespasses against them. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's not very theological now, is it? And he does that, what? When you come in by covering us with the righteousness of Christ. Do we still sin? Yeah. <laughs> but it means we're covered in the righteousness of Christ. We are robed no longer with the defiled garment of the flesh, spiritually dead, but one that is washed clean and made white in the blood of the Lamb. All right? This is justification. It's a declaration of God, by God, in which he has declared the sinner righteous, covered with the righteousness of Christ. All right? We know that through Adam, sin was what? Transferred, imputed to us all, right? And through Christ, his righteousness transferred, imputed to us as new creations. Therefore, we are ambassadors then for Christ. Then we, we, like, we come and render this service. And it's as though God were entreating or pleading or coming alongside and calling through us. Calling what? calling the sinner, calling the world to faith. So he says, we implore you. Do we know what that is? Implore. We beg you. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Wait a minute. God is begging sinners? <laughs> that a floor, yeah? God's begging sinners? I thought he was an angry God and he's looking down on the world just re ready to destroy it all. <laughs> How can he do that if he's reconciled the world to himself? Right? Throw that out the window. God's begging sinners? Okay, what? Reconciliation is God's work. He authored it. He's the source. He's the power. He does it by this declarative act of justification. Now, we are asking the sinner. We are begging. We are pleading. We are entreating and saying, be reconciled to God. We're the ambassadors. We're the representatives for Christ. And it is God who is calling through us, it says. Through us, as if God himself is calling through us to sinners Begging them, begging them that the, that word beg, it means to ask of a specific thing where we are saying simply what is said in Acts by Paul to the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's our ministry. That's what we're about. This is what we're called to do. We call people to be reconciled to God, to believe, believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord, repent of their sin, and they're to be cleansed and purified. That easy. 
<laughs> Maybe not that easy. Sounds easy. And this is why Jesus, who knew no sin, became a sin offering on our behalf. So what I was going to say earlier is so many people have heard for so long that, well, the other day we were talking, the, the first great awakening that happened, Jonathan Edwards, his famous sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's what started the great awakening, the first great awakening. And he was he he was so he had the he was so particular. He never wanted his emotion, his voice, any anything that he taught from the pulpit. He wanted to make sure it had no influence whatsoever on anybody's emotions. And so he typed everything out. The sermon's like an hour and 30 minutes, I think, like that. It's 19 pages long. And he read in a low, monotone voice that expressed no emotion or no action to word at all whatsoever. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Right? This sparked the first great awakening. <laughs> No, okay, can't do it. I tried. And he looked down the whole time. No altar calls, no asking to be uh, a decision be made or anything like that. They were to go home and then they come to this faith themselves, you know, through the faith that they receive by hearing what they hear. But it, it was the second of great awakening then where Charles Finney picked it up. So that was good. We can make it better. Let's tell people they have to make a decision. And then they even, if the altar was full, they had a, a bench over there where you could wait to go to the altar because you, you just couldn't pray wherever. <laughs> and they called that the anxious bench, right? So, <laughs> but what was it? God's angry. God's mad. You're going to burn. Turn or burn and all this stuff. Okay, look, you're... you're yeah, you, you remain dead, all right? If you remain dead in your trespasses and sins and, and you reject the gospel, then you are going to end up being dead for eternity. This eternal life versus eternal death, okay? But here's the thing. Here's what I was going to say. If God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and we become ambassadors now because we're in Christ, so we're representatives of the kingdom of God, we have to tell people they've been reconciled. Right? So what good is it if, you know, I don't know, I don't want to just point something. What, if you and one of your sisters get in a big argument, right, 30 years down the road, <laughs> for, you guys have not spoken to each other whatsoever, but you had decided that you were okay with what happened because you couldn't even remember what the fight was about, Right? And you're fine. You're not mad anymore. And you actually miss her and you love her, but you can't get a hold of her. But you've been rec you've reconciled yourself to her, right? Somebody's got to tell her sister, <laughs> right? Her sister doesn't know. And her sister's still going around going, she hates me. They're no good. Blah, 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 blah. You know, sister stuff. I don't know. <laughs> We've been entrusted with this. It's been placed in us. Okay. Placed in us. Okay, so he has put it in us. So 1 Peter 2, 20, 24, 25, this sums up that part of Jesus who knew no sin, became a sin, offering on our behalf, becomes sin. 1 Peter 2, 24, 25, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, right? And we know the world's astray, 
But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We are ambassadors then, right? To those sheep who are going astray, the message we preach is this reconciliation, favor restored through Christ crucified. And we implore, we plead, we beg to sinners to be reconciled to God who has provided reconciliation and he who is pleading through us.